Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you guys. As you probably know, today is the first Sunday of Lent and the first week of our new Lenten sermon series on the Christian virtues. Now, during the season of Lent, we're going to be thinking about what it means when the Apostle Paul urges us to put on the new self, which means living out our truest identity as beloved children, created in the likeness of God and redeemed by Jesus. Now, one of the lens through which to think about this new self is the Christian virtues. And this morning we're going to be looking at the virtue of kindness from a passage in Ephesians 4. Now, Paul doesn't use the word kindness until the very end of our passage, but in many ways what comes before fleshes out what it means practically to put on kindness as a community of people who follow Jesus. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to uh, Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 17 and go through 5-2. It's also printed in your order of worship. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds And to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you are sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This is God's word given to us for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we're thankful uh, that we have this space to be able to worship you. And we're also grateful for this season of Lent that reminds us, in some ways, who we are. From dust we came, into dust we shall return. But we're also reminded that you have broken that curse, that you have taken on that curse, and you have indeed given us new life in your resurrection. And Father, we know all of that. All of that, the good news of the gospel, comes because of your kindness. 
your kindness towards us even when we were your enemy. And so, Father, I pray this morning that our hearts would be open to receive your kindness, that we would know it, we would see the kindness in your face, and it would transform us. Yeah, we pray that you, your word would speak to us now. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the uh, great delights of my life is spending time planning how I'm going to scare Pastor Dan. I accept that this may cause some of you to judge my character, but I'm going to tell you about it anyway. Now, Pastor Dan and I have a rivalry going on about who can get the other best. We have hid behind doors and couches and pews. He's hid in my office closet, and I've hid under his desk for over 15 minutes, responding to emails, waiting for the perfect moment to make his heart stop. It's awesome. And what makes it so thrilling to scare Pastor Dan is that he is such a good sport about getting scared to the point of almost collapsing on the floor in sheer terror and laughter. My heart sings when I hear him say, oh man, you got me good. You totally got me. So I guess in some ways it's not surprising that I also really enjoy finding a good YouTube video on a high-quality scare. I love sharing them. I love watching them. Now, you have probably all seen the one where someone is dressed as a scarecrow on a porch on Halloween, and a few middle school-aged trick-or-treaters head off the porch after getting their candy, candy, and suddenly the scarecrow jumps out at them. And they freak out, and they scream, and they run away, and of course it's hilarious. But then moments later, there appears to be a slightly older high schooler walking towards the scarecrow, and something different happens. This time, the moment that the scarecrow jumps out, even without thinking, this kid delivers a lightning-fast punch to the scarecrow's face, knocking him down. Now, it's obvious, if you've seen it, that his form and his reflexes um, come from someone who has been trained as a boxer. Now, it's over so fast that you can, you can barely take it in. But, of course, this is the risk of jumping out and scaring people on Halloween. Now, fortunately, no one was hurt, but if someone happens to be a boxer... Their reflexes and fists are trained to respond without even having to process what's happening, and you're going to get jacked in the face. Well, in a far more mature sense, what we're talking about is a similar process taking place when we ask God to build virtues into our lives. Practicing virtues over time, what it does is it trains our hearts and our minds and our bodies to see and desire Jesus' goodness, which in turn transforms our character into his likeness. To to paraphrase the theologian and pastor N.T. Wright, he says, Virtue is what we gain when we have made a thousand small choices requiring effort and concentration to do that which is good and right but doesn't come naturally to any of us. And then on the thousandth and first time, when it really matters, 
we find that we do what is good and right because it has become part of who we are. Like playing an instrument or riding a bike or for a boxer delivering, delivering a knockout punch. Kindness is the virtue that we see Paul encouraging the Ephesians to practice throughout our passage. And as Paul points out at the end, kindness is one of the purest imitations of God. And so pursuing kindness must be central to the rhythm of our lives as followers of Jesus. And because of this, I want to start by looking at the very end of our passage in verse 32 through uh, chapter 5, verse 2. And this is what Paul says. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Now, Paul here is highlighting three key qualities of kindness. The first is that it deeply touches the heart. It's tender-hearted. It is unexpected in that it is forgiving. It is undeserved as God in Christ forgave us. You know, in our world, the word kind often gets used interchangeably with nice or niceness. But as we read the qualities of kindness that Paul lists, it's clear that kindness and niceness couldn't be more different. Niceness is a veneer that helps us get along in the world. A nice person is someone who is outwardly pleasant, non-offensive, says the appropriate things, and avoids conflict. Now, being nice, while not wrong, is not a Christian virtue. Because niceness is essentially self-centered. It helps us get what we want in life, and it helps us make our way through life with the least amount of inconvenience. Now, like a veneer, niceness does not stand up to rough handling. So, for example, a person who has put on niceness might be smiling and pleasant to the server taking their order. But when the server messes up their order or they take longer than they're supposed to to bring out your food or they accidentally overcharge you, niceness gives way to frustration and entitlement. Because niceness was just the vehicle for getting through the inter interaction as easily as possible. But if niceness is a veneer, kindness is more like a solid oak table or a top quality leather chair. Chair, Time reveals its beauty. Kindness is desiring and acting for someone else's good and their flourishing regardless of whether they deserve it or not. In fact, kindness shows special regard and favor to those who can't do anything for us in return. It's a powerful generosity of the heart that reflects God's generosity towards us. So that's, what, that's where all of us must begin this morning, looking at God's kind face toward us. Because all Christian love and all Christian kindness begins with the recognition that you and I, you and I are beloved 
Paul has spent the first part of his letter unpacking what it means that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And essentially the image that Paul gives us in chapter 1 is one of God emptying his pockets for us. And he does it without requiring us to earn it. Because he looks at us with a face of tender kindness and compassion. And he chose us to be at the center of his rescue plan and redemption of the world from death and brokenness. And here's what's beautiful. God doesn't stop there. Paul tells us that he brings us into his family as beloved daughters and sons. And he gives us his spirit as his promise that he will never change his face toward us. That he has prepared a home and a future for us. His disposition toward us has always been and will always be one of deep and profound kindness. And that kindness is what teaches our hearts to be kind. Paul's message here is be kind to one another, forgiving uh, each other and walk in love because that is how God is towards you. And that's not meant to be a guilt trip. It's meant to give us the roadmap to maturity in the Christian life. Because all of our goodness is a reflection of being made in God's image. And all of our healing and redemption comes through God's work on our behalf. It is not something that we manufacture on our own. And so please hear this. We can put on kindness only when we have received it from him. What Paul is urging these young Christians is that they would allow... Jesus' teaching to have its full effect in their lives. And church, this is true for us as well. We must put ourselves in the places in which we can see the kind face of God toward us. And where is that? And let me just recommend that there are three practical ways that that is true. We encounter God's kind face in Scripture, as in our gospel lesson where Jesus reminds us that God's kindness doesn't depend on our performance. He loved us when we were his enemies. We encounter God's kind face as we seek him in prayer, when we ask him to help us to see his face and ours. And we're meant to encounter his face in a powerful, life-changing ways as we live in community with one another. Your and my kind face is meant to point us to the kindness of God. So what I want us to do is I want us to go back to verse 25 and examine how Paul is urging the church at Ephesus to put on kindness in their everyday dealings with one another. Here's what Paul says in verse 25. Having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor For we are members of one another. Now, the literal translation of what Paul is saying here is, let us put away the lie. Let us put away the lie. Paul has been teaching in his letter that the church is a family. 
And that's what he means here when he says that we are members of one another. Now, I recognize that each of us comes into the church with different experiences of what it means to be in a family. Some healthy, some not healthy, mostly mixed. And some of us come from places where truth was spoken without, with thoughtlessness and even cruelty in order to hurt us. And in other families, truth was never spoken at all out of a desire to avoid conflict. Now, we both know that both of those ways of living do great harm. But Paul is saying here that Jesus invites us to a third way. The church is called to be a family in which truth is spoken in love. And Jesus makes it possible for us to speak all the truth that, truth that we can, especially when it is hard, and to do so in such a way that truth brings life and goodness. And this is why Paul states earlier in chapter 4 and verse 15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head in Christ. Now, I think that the command to speak the truth in love is absolutely revolutionary. It was revolutionary for the first hearers, and it is definitely revolutionary for us in our culture today on so many levels. What it means is, first, that you cannot be kind without telling the truth. It is impossible. And if we never dare to confront, then we are not putting away the lie. But on the other hand, Truth spoken without honor and prayerful regard for our neighbor is a bastard lie. It is a lie. And to hold these two things together, truth and honor, and see them as inseparable, essential components of life together in Christ, church, it takes immense wisdom and courage. And frankly, it is impossible without the work of the Spirit. And it is impossible without a community of consistent practice of the virtue of kindness. But if we know that our new self is created after the likeness of God, then we can have hope that God will do good work in us and make us people to make our hearts as kind as possible to dare to begin to speak the truth in love. Because this is what Jesus does. Is it not? I mean, all you got to do is read through the Gospels. He perfectly embodies truth and honor. Truth and love in every interaction that we find him in. For example, I, I think of Jesus telling Peter on the night before his crucifixion that Peter would deny him three times before morning came. And Jesus doesn't do this to shame Peter. But rather, Jesus says it so that Peter might actually begin to see himself clearly, maybe for the first time. Peter has just said that he's, he's ready to, to, to go to prison. He's ready to die for Jesus. But the truth is that Peter's courage will fail when his back is up against the wall. 
And Jesus is helping Peter to put away the lie that he is stronger and less fearful than he really is. I want to encourage you to go read the story in Luke 22 this afternoon because it is beautiful. It's compelling. But essentially, this is what Jesus says to Peter. He says, Peter, you are telling me that you are ready to go to prison and to die. But before this day is over, you are going to pretend that you don't even know me. And the evil one would love to use the shame that you will, feel, you will feel to overthrow the love and trust between us. But I will not give up on you. I have prayed for you and I see who God has made you to be. And when you have prevailed over your fear, come back. Come back because I have plans for you in my kingdom. Jesus speaks truth in the service of love in order to strengthen Peter to combat shame and to hold wide open the possibility of restoration of relationship. Now, I also think about the Samaritan woman that Jesus met at the well in John chapter 4. She tells Jesus a half-truth. She says, I have no husband. And she says it to save faith, same face in a culture in which it was scandalous. But Jesus calls her out because in the family that he is, he is, is building, in the family is where truth is always to be spoken in love. And Jesus says to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. You have, you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. And then he offers this woman who has been on the outside of every social category that matters in her world a place on the inside. And her response is mind-blowing. Her response is to go and tell everyone in the town, this guy must be the Messiah because he has told me everything that I have ever did. Church, who does that? Who does that? Rather than being shamed, she is elated. Jesus speaking the truth about her meant that she was freed from having to hide. And to her great surprise, he offers her a place at his table. We practice kindness when we speak the truth to one another for the other's good in service to love. And when we find ourselves hurt by someone in this family, we can ask God to help us find a way to go to them to speak the truth for the sake of restoring the relationship. And of course, when others come to us with their hurt, we can begin to ask God to help us put our defenses down and engage with openness and a desire to understand. Now, I want to be the first to say that this is not easy. I also live in this community. And this is surely one of the hardest things about being in a relationship. But Jesus has grace for this practice. And can you imagine how his church would transform the world when this is how we do life together? 
Now, Paul moves on in verses 26 and 28 to deal with the issue of anger. And he starts these verses by quoting part of Psalm 4-4. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, it's interesting and, and maybe surprising to some of us that Paul is not saying that anger itself is the problem. He is not saying, don't sin by being angry. Paul's assumption is that we will get angry and it's what we do with our anger that matters. And I think as with telling the truth, many of us have a lot of baggage when it comes to anger and our response to anger. Some of us were taught to simply dismiss our anger, to try to swallow it and deny it, or blindly indulge it by raging at whoever happens to trigger it. But once again, Jesus offers us a new way of living in his family. And I think what Paul is suggesting is that we ought to pay close attention to our anger. That we need to have a kind of holy curiosity about what makes us angry about the cause of our anger. Because at its most basic level, anger tells us that something is wrong. And our present anger is almost always an activation, a stirring up of a past wound. And so our jobs as people who know God's kindness is to trace our anger back to its root and name that which is wrong. We are to seek it out and speak the truth that is driving our anger. And church, I know from personal experience, this often takes other people. Almost always, it takes other people to help us see it. But here's what happens. When we do it, we will find that we are able to bring our wounds to Jesus for tending and healing. We will find direction and passion to fight against evil and brokenness in this world. Because anger motivates us. We may also discover in the process our own brokenness, our own wounds, and God's kind invitation to repentance as well. Now on the other hand, if we don't figure out what our anger is about it will become an opportunity, a stronghold for sin. Paul says that if we nurse our anger, it will be used as a foothold for the devil. Now, the word translated opportunity or foothold is literally translated place. And that is, we must not give the devil a place, give him room in our lives to operate and nurture the other sins that Paul mentions in verse 31. Bitterness and wrath, and clamor, and malice. Because it will cause harm in the community of faith as it erodes relationships. And it will cause harm in our own hearts. And it will cause us to lose trust and detach from his body. And Paul's point about not letting the sun go down on your anger is a way of saying that anger must be dealt with urgently because of its great power, either for good or for harm. 
we have to begin to develop the habit of telling the truth about our anger and bringing it to God so that it can be transformed and bear fruit of telling the truth, of truth-telling and reconciliation. Now, Paul has two final things to say before we arrive back where we started in the beginning at God's kindness towards us. He writes in verse 28 and 29, Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Now, unfortunately, we don't have time to unpack this, but I do want us to see one thing. I want us to see that in both of these examples, God's call on our life is all-encompassing. It is all-encompassing. We are meant to practice loving kindness for one another's good in every aspect of our lives, from our truth-telling to how we think about our anger to what we do as our profession and to every word that we speak. The practice of kindness is one that defines everything in our lives in relationship with one another. Because Paul calls us a family. And the reality is that we will struggle and we will fail at this. Not if, but when. And what we need, what we need to do is to return to Jesus who in the face of evil, even as he bore its mark in his head and hands and side, called down his father's kindness on those who considered him their enemy. Church, this, this is the face of our God. And he is inviting us to experience his kindness so that we might be able to live in it. His kindness toward us is... It is fierce, it is formidable, it is not blind or deaf, it is deeply attentive, it tells the truth, and it honors. And this astonishing kindness has the power to transform us into fiercely kind people, who the Spirit uses to bring Jesus' goodness and healing to the world. Amen. May it be so.